out of dozens and dozens and dozens of, of items we could care about for the future of America. So everything from values like individual rights or climate change issues or being the most powerful country in the world. If you just look at the top 10, the things we that matter the most, we actually share eight out of those 10 in common across all demographics. The problem is we don't believe that it's true. We are so convinced that other people don't share our aspirations for the country that it becomes an effectively a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Today, I'm joined by Todd Rose, co-founder of the think tank Populous. Todd has a new book that I strongly encourage you to read. It's incredible, and no joke, it will help you understand what is happening culturally, politically, and civically right now. It's called Collective Illusions. Good morning, Todd. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, Good morning, Jill. Great to be here. Well, it's so good to see you. Todd, we're going to talk about, there's so many things we could always talk about, but we're going to talk today about Collective Illusions, which is a book that is out now. I think, where is it? It's sitting like somewhere in the top of Amazon's list. Yeah, it's been it's been lucky. It was a Wall Street Journal bestseller. You never know how these things go, but I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, well, it went very well. It went very well, though, I think, because it makes a hell of a lot of sense, and it would be pretty amazing if every American read it. That's the hope. Well, it would just it would just help level set us all because I think everyone feels everyone I talk to anyway feels like we're on kind of shaky grounds. Like what is going on? What has happened over the past couple of years? It seemed like we were moving along and solving issues and fighting the good fight. And I don't know what's happened yeah. in the past two years, right? I don't know about you, but like the common thing that I've heard from everything from my progressive friends to my libertarian friends is some version of, "Am I crazy?" Or did the whole country go crazy overnight? And people knew we had some differences, but it felt like we were making progress. And now it just feels like the wheels have, have come off. Okay, so you you actually know why this is. Yeah, like, here, here's what's interesting. And, and I guess we should just say right off the bat, like, let me give you a definition for collective illusions. <laughs> so they are essentially social lies. And they happen in situations where most people in a group end up going along with something that they don't privately agree with simply because they incorrectly believe that most everybody else in the group agrees with it. And, and as a result, entire groups can end up going along with something that almost nobody really agreed with. Why does that happen? What's the psychology behind that? We've known about this phenomenon for 100 years in research, but it's, it's only recently that they've just gotten out of control. Like all over the place, we can talk about some of those examples, but that level of misunderstanding you might think would be like hard to come by or require like a bad actor or somebody, you know, manipulating us. But it really is driven by our brains. And you just, you just need to know two things about how our brains are wired to know how we end up getting these collective illusions, right? So Mm -hmm. the first is we have a hardwired bias to conform to our groups. That it's it's not a character flaw. It's like hardwired in our brains. All else equal, we would prefer to be with our group, not against it. And we can talk about it in the book. I I share some specific studies just showing you how hardwired it is. But if you just trust me that like we just prefer to be with our groups, okay, fine. It's bad enough when you conform to the group and you're right about what the group thinks. That's your call. But this is a whole different problem because the second thing you need to know about your brain is that you're actually spectacularly bad at estimating the group consensus because your brain takes this shortcut. Your brain assumes that the loudest voices repeated the most are the majority. Hmm. So that shortcut was never great, right? I mean, he probably worked, obviously it worked well enough to have- It worked when it was like fire or big dinosaur (laughs) or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. And, and, And when we were in, you know, like, you know, the Dunbar number where it was like, you know, we used to be in groups of like 150 or whatever it is, right? Okay, so you could see how that shortcut probably works, that you're roughly hearing from people, no one's contradicting the loudest voices. But nowadays, particularly with social media, that shortcut is a huge liability. And let me give you an example of what I mm, mean. Yeah. So take just Twitter alone. So we know from research that 80% of all the content on Twitter is generated by 10% of the users. And according to Pew Research, 
that 10% isn't, isn't even remotely representative of the rest of the country. They tend to be extreme on almost every social issue. But if you follow that through, it's like, imagine if only 10% of people in the country hold an opinion, but you think it's 80%. Well, your brain's going to assume that's the majority opinion. And unless you are willing to go against the grain, right, speak up against what you think the group thinks, you'll just default to either like lying about what you think to belong, or most people, they'll just say nothing. They'll self-silence. Yeah, this was really interesting to me that I mean, most of us will just quiet ourselves because otherwise yeah. we're in the fray, we're perceived to be in the fray. Yeah, and to your point, so, so here's the thing that's really terrifying to me. So if, if basically most people start self-silencing, then the only voices anybody hears are from the fringe. And the result will be a collective illusion. And and in the on U.S. today, sides. on both sides, and in the U.S. today, Cato did this research, and and my think tank Populous has has done the same research and confirmed it. Right now, two thirds of adult Americans admit to self silencing. Two thirds. Like, how does a democracy function if most people are unwilling to tell the truth about what they believe? So no wonder we've got these illusions. And they and they do that because it's too painful or it's just the easier route or why why what's our natural tendency as humans to like why do we self-silence? Yeah, so again, not wanting to be against your group. Let let's dig into that for a minute and I'll use one neuroscience study that I love because I can't believe anyone got paid to do it. It's like a fancy version of hot or not, right? Which is <laughs> like basically my colleague he wanted to know how deep our conformity bias went. And he actually put people in a scanner and he gave them pictures of people's faces. And he asked them to rate them about how attractive you thought they were if you were in the study. And it was on a scale of one to five. But the clever part about the study was every time you responded, so let's say you see a face and you say, oh, that's a two, not very attractive. You're instantly shown a number that was supposed to represent the average response of everyone who's done the study before, right? So it's a group you don't even care about. And this is about something subjective, like who you think is good looking, but it was all manipulated so that the group numbers were fake. And what it, what it meant was if you were in the study half the time, it was, it was meant so that the group agreed with you and half the time you were, you were against your group. And so here's, what's fascinating when you are with your group or you believe you are, it triggers a dopamine reward response in your brain. The, the same reward response that hard drugs activate. So it, it's pretty powerful. Conversely, on those times when you were told that your subjective rating of attractiveness diverged from the group, it triggered what's called an error signal in your brain, which is this all-hands-on-deck cascading electrical signal that disrupts attention, memory. It, it's meant to tell you something is wrong, correct your behavior. So imagine we're sitting here now and we're thinking, well, I believe X and I think everyone does too. Oh, wait, no, now I'm not so sure. I'm on Twitter 12 hours a day and I'm pretty sure we all think why now. So am I really willing to give up the reward of being with the group if I, if I lie about it or at worst, just avoid the error signal, right? Because we do not want to get ostracized from our groups. And so that was always bad enough. It was always the human dilemma even when you were right about the group, right? Do you conform or do you stand your ground? But here's the problem with collective illusions. You are wrong about the group to begin with. And so the act of conformity not only hurts you in ways we can talk about, but it can actually destroy the very group that you're trying to conform to. And the problem is you will not know that you're wrong. You're, you are convinced that you know what the group thinks and you're wrong. Right. And it's self-reinforcing. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you do, because I think it's important to understand that you don't only ask people what their opinion is. You then say, okay, now in private, what, what is your opinion? What do you, re how do you really feel? And this is where you sort of start to unearth the notion of a collective illusion. And you can really kind of show it in, in numbers in, in polling. You said it's been happening for a very long time in polling, right? This is not new. It's just becoming yeah. bigger and more amplified because of the mediums that we work through now. Can just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So at, at Populous, my think tank, we do what's called private opinion research. And the idea is that we know that people are social creatures and we knew that we don't know what we say out loud isn't always what we think. And so right. we've used methods, you know, we weren't smart enough to invent the methods, but um, we <laughs> borrowed them from smarter people 
they get around the effects of like social pressure and other distortions to get a more accurate picture of people's private values and priorities. And so part of that, that, that we've been doing for the last, you know, six, seven years is every time we use one of these private opinion instruments, we always ask people, what do you think? And then what do you think most people would say? And that allows us to get a picture of their private views for themselves, but also their view of what they think the majority thinks. And it's interesting, we started doing that double type of question right after the 2016 election, because like everybody else, we were just surprised by the results. And you realize there was a lot of people who weren't telling the truth about their views. And then when they go into a voting booth, no one's watching, right? And so we had done this because we thought, well, why would people feel like they have to lie? And anyway, whatever. And so this this double question became important. And honestly, I figured it would be isolated to a few specific areas, some political issues, which is definitely true. I am just shocked at how widespread it is today. So we have probably more private opinion data on the American public than anybody else in the country. And, and I'm telling you, it, it whether we're talking about the lives we want to live, our values, including our politics, the country we want to live in, what we want out of education or the jobs we do, or just how we want to treat one another, we see the same thing over and over again. We are spectacularly wrong about what our groups actually believe. So can we just talk, give give a couple of examples about that, like the lives we want to live or about education or about how we want the world to work? What shows up in your research? So I'll tell you what, let's start with the most charged issues and work our way to something more enjoyable. Okay, right? that's fine. Um, that's fine. So although I am almost hyper allergic to politics, it's not surprising that that the issues that are political tend to be things that are reinforcing illusions. So let me give you two, one on the left and one on the right that matters right now in our data. So on the left, if you look at the thing like the defund the police movement, a majority of Democrats believe that a majority of Democrats support that movement. But the truth is, is in private, it's in single digits who actually supports it. We're all going along, right? Because we think everybody thinks this is a good idea. Privately, we don't want it. Now, that one, that illusion already shattered because it was put to a vote in Minneapolis and it went down in flames, right? So that one kind of, you know, and then you had the president of the United States actually openly stating that in the State of the Union. So that one took care of itself. On the right, the biggest of political illusion is the previous election and whether it was stolen. So here's what's interesting. Even in our data, like like other people's, in public, 57% of registered Republican voters say that the election was stolen. In private, it's closer to 14%. The reason they're saying it is they believe that most Republicans think this. And so imagine you don't even like the media to begin with. Gallup calls you and says, hey, do you think the election was stolen from Donald Trump? What do I get for telling the truth? I get ostracized from my tribe, right? From the group that I care about. Well, I'm not a Democrat. So now I'm just a a political orphan. There's just not enough upside for most people to be willing to tell the truth. And so they'll either say nothing, but if they're asked, they'll just what's called, they'll falsify their preference. Now, obviously there's exactly one person in the country who benefits from that illusion. and And so our politics are just riddled with these illusions because they do benefit some politicians. But it would be great if I could just say, well, it's just politics. But again, it's not. It's happening in in part because of social media on just about everything. So let's go to something that's not political, but affects all of our lives. So how we think about a successful life, like what are the priorities we have for a good life? What what could be more important than the kind of life you want to live? And and that seems kind of subjective. But um, we did a few years ago, was called the the success index. And it was the largest private opinion study ever about the trade-off priorities people have for their lives. And what's cool about this instrument is it uses a method called conjoint because I don't just want to know what you care about. I want to know what you'll sacrifice for it. I want to know your trade-off priorities. And so this actually forces real-world choices between 76 different possibilities for a good life. Everything from being the richest person you know to having a family and everything in between. And it's really hard to fake. And we, like we were talking about earlier, we asked for every time we did it, we'd ask, what do you think? And what do you think most people would think? So here's the thing. Americans believe that most Americans care about being famous more than anything else. That it, they, they believe that that is the number one ranked thing for most Americans. Number one out of 76. In private, 
it's dead last. 76th out of 76. So illusions don't get much bigger than that. But this one's really important because this illusion of fame, it really speaks to the urgency and consequences of collective illusions. They're not benign, right? When we talk to our advertising friends and our Hollywood friends who keep selling us on fame, well, they're under the same illusions. They said, look, we're not trying to put our thumb on the scale. We're trying to give people what they want. Well, because they think they want fame, they give it to us. Now I'm sitting back going, I don't care about fame, but I'm sure everybody else does. Because why would Rolex keep advertising that to me if nobody cared? So that keeps feeding the illusion. Here's the real damage. If we don't do something about collective illusions, this generation's illusions tend to become next generation's private opinion. And we're seeing that with respect to, to the issue of fame. So my colleagues at UCLA have been studying the effects of media and culture on middle school kids for years. Want to understand what values are they absorbing uh, from media? Well, up until a few years ago, every single year, the dominant thing that kids internalized was character related. I want to be a good person. I want to be honest. I want to have friends. Okay, fine. A few years ago, it changed and it hasn't changed back. Now, the number one thing is I want to be famous. And in, in fact, there was one, the last one they did, they had an interview with a, a kid who said, I want to have a million followers. And they were like, at what? Well, he couldn't even say. Just, I want to have a million followers. So look, it's bad enough that our unwillingness to be honest about what we care about has led our children to pursue, is going to pursue a pretty hollow life. And they're going to find out the hard way that there's not much at the end of that road. What happens when the same thing occurs with respect to the kind of country we want to live in, the way we want to treat one another, what we expect out of our, our public institutions, right? It, this is the very core of democracy, and, and no wonder it's not working right now. Well, right. And do you worry that there are folks who do have a place in the media where lots of people are listening, or politicians, or corporate leaders? They're, they're certainly sitting in roles where they can take advantage of perpetuating these collective illusions, do you think that's happening? So so some of them, what's interesting, and you probably know this as well. So I can I can speak to having been on book tour and then meeting with a lot of politicians. <laughs> I'll just say like the number of, say, for example, Republican senators and congresspeople that I've talked to who are like privately like, oh, of course, I know the election wasn't stolen. A lot of them, they're not just doing it for their own sake. I was surprised to find out just how much they're under the illusion as well. And so they say, but look, my constituents definitely think it was stolen. And so I'm not going to lie to them. I'm just not going to say anything. And it's like a lot of them, or at least a few of them have told me privately that understanding collective illusions gave them an awareness of the consequences of that silence. They didn't quite realize what they were doing. Now, if you believe them, then that's, you know, hopefully we can get back to like being honest. But there are a few people, the folks that genuinely hold the fringe ideas, if they're aware of the fact they're in the fringe, then they also are aware of the fact that these illusions are the only way that they actually have power. And so they will selectively amplify them to their own end. What is the way to battle a collective illusion? I mean, do we all just have to start, like, turn it all on and all start speaking up? What exactly has to happen in order for us to reverse? Because your, your work shows that we mostly across America all sit in the middle. We all hold the same belief systems. We all value the same things. Those things generally are not to be famous, but much more so to have a good life, have a stable job, have food on the table. It's all, it's all like regular things. It's shocking. So we'll circle back to the, like, what do we do about this? Let's just talk about the common ground. At Populous, we are not interested in make-believe. We're not trying to pretend there's some consensus that doesn't exist. If we really are divided, privately, then we need to know that so we can actually learn how to compromise and figure out a way forward. But that's not what we find. So using private opinion data, it, it's shocking how much we have in common across demographics and ideology. It, it really is. I mean, there are some really loud fringes. They have gotten a lot of power because of these collective illusions. But like, let's take something that I was really surprised by. We did what's called the American Aspirations Index, looking at the trade-off priorities we have for the future of the country. Like, what, what do we want America to be? It was unbelievable. Like, first of all, before we put people in the private opinion instrument, we just asked them point blank, did they think we were more united or divided as a country? And 82% of people said we were more divided. 
Half of those people said we are extremely divided and it gets worse. If you just cut the data by who you voted for in the last election, a majority of both sides said the other side no longer shares my values for the country. Okay. Then you put them in the private opinion trade-off instrument and it's a completely different story. So for example, out of dozens and dozens and dozens of items we could care about for the future of America. So everything from values like individual rights or climate change issues or being the most powerful country in the world. If you just look at the top 10, the things we that matter the most, we actually share eight out of those 10 in common across all demographics. The problem is we don't believe that it's true. We are so convinced that other people don't share our aspirations for the country that it becomes an effectively a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it, it really does. At the end of the day, There's an old um, in sociology called the Thomas theorem, which is if people believe something to be true in their minds, it is true in its consequences. (laughs) And and this is where we're at. Let me ask you about the psychology of this. So let's say that someone who's running for president in the next election picks up your book and understands this 100 percent. You would argue that that person could parrot what private opinion is and they would pick up 80 percent of the electorate. Is that right? Is it like that simple in terms of like, if, if we all heard someone saying what we internally believed, it would be a horse to get behind. There, there is an opening right now. And I will say that we've been doing a lot of private briefings on both sides of the aisle to help leaders understand the reality of this and also just understand our publicly available private opinion data, right? Because I think you're exactly right, which is if you get to the heart of what people really privately value and aspire to, they wish it were true that everybody agreed with them. They just don't believe it's true, right? So it's it's funny. I don't have to change your mind. I have to change the circumstances that allow you to see that, in fact, most people agree with you. There's only really two ways that those illusions break. The first are using what's called social meaning regulators, including elected officials who have an asymmetric influence, right? So if I'm running for office, I mean, this is it. I, I would speak the language of this vast middle and speak to their aspirations and their values. And and look, my friends on the left won't like this, but I think this is what Ronald Reagan did in the 80s and like it or not, right? It's like there was an untapped big middle that that didn't like Carter's, you know, malaise idea. And he was able to ride that into, I mean, when you look at the electoral victories in those two elections, and we haven't seen anything like that before or after, I think that there is this place where the vast majority of Americans care about very similar things. And it's they're very moderate. They're just not extreme views. And so there's an opportunity there. But the second thing, and, and the very powerful thing under illusions, is not just the leaders, but it's everyday people, people that I believe are like me speaking up. And you're starting to see a little bit of that in this sort of cultural reset that's happening, where people are, are sort of fed up with the very anti-liberal sort of approach of it's okay to silence people, it's okay to have them lose their job because I disagree with them. You're seeing a lot of pushback on that now. But at the end of the day, if everyday people, I guess, are not willing to be honest with our neighbors and people we don't know about our views, it's going to be very hard to undo these illusions. So where does most of this happen, though, Todd? Because if we're, you know, we're socializing with people who we believe are like us. And so I would think we're not doing a lot of collective illusion building there because those are probably the folks that we're most honest with. Where are people where for enough time in the day or in the week that collective illusions can actually kind of happen? Yeah. So first of all, not surprisingly, online is just a hotbed for illusions because of just the dynamics of social media. It both allows everyone to have a voice, which I think is a great thing, but it also allows very small numbers of people to masquerade as group consensus. And so that's the first place. And I will say, Whatever people think about Elon Musk buying Twitter, if he goes through with the idea of getting rid of the bots on it, that will actually go a long way because we know from research from Clemson University that both Russia and China intentionally use social bots to distort perceived opinion in America. And what they do is it's not that they're spreading lies. It's that they go in and say on conservative Twitter, they will analyze sentiment they will identify fringe views that are really held by Americans. They're just by a very small number. Swarm with bots, amplify, retweet until everybody else thinks this is what we believe. 
on both sides and we end up just dividing ourselves and we're, we're essentially doing their job for them. So, yeah, I was going to ask you about Elon Musk. He is articulating that that is what he plans to do. And he was tweeting about how many there were, how many bots there were. Is this just one thing that we should all be pushing for is that we should a little bit be holding social media to the expectation that we need a version two. Version one was interesting, complicated and unsuccessful in terms of really representing the values and opinions of the actual humans who are using it. Yeah. So the V1, we got something out of it. And so there is there is a tech solution here to some degree. And then there's a, just a human solution, which is the ultimate solution. So the tech solution is some transparency in the algorithms. This is also what Musk has, has promoted. So we understand what is prioritized and amplified by the platform itself. Fair enough. The bots will go a really long way because it's just so easy. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of millions of bots. It's just unreal. And we know from research that if 5% of your interactions on social media are with bots, if the bots are designed the right way, they can completely determine group consensus on an issue. Like with a 60% majority, with 5%. Now, here's the scary part. The most conservative research I've seen says the typical person, their interactions online, 19% of them are with bots. So that alone will go away. So let's not sleep on that. Like, I think Elon is 100% correct here. Now, here's the trick. Social media platforms have had zero incentive to get rid of these because it inflates their numbers and their engagement metrics. So there was like a perverse incentive just to look the other way. But here's the thing. We can't solve this issue just with technology. It's never going to happen because this is our brain's interaction with the technology. The limitations of our brains are millions and millions of years in the making, and they are not going to change overnight. So I see this moment we're in similar to every other time societies have been transformed by a big technology, going all the way back to like Socrates and the written word, right? Every time we think, oh, it's going to be so much better. And then what you realize is it's just trade-offs. And in order to get the full upside of the technology, you have to understand that it almost always requires some new mindset or skill that limits the downside and maximizes the upside. So think about back to Socrates. He didn't like the idea of going from oral tradition to written word. He said, but it seems obvious that it would be worth it if you could write information down. But clearly, it's only valuable if you acquire a new skill called literacy. Because if I can't read, then it's definitely not better to have written it down. Oral tradition was open to everybody. And because we didn't recognize that trade-off, the elites, basically, the wealthy and the clergy, hoarded that skill arguably till the Reformation, right? (laughs) Almost an act of God to get this to be democratized. Similar things in a funny way have happened. In Germany, when we first had passenger trains, lots of people were getting vertigo on them. And the German authorities said, listen, God did not mean us to ride on trains. And so they were going to ban passengers from riding on them. And some enterprising person said, well, wait a minute. How come some people aren't getting vertigo and others are? And you realize, just you got to look far off in the distance. Don't just look right out the window. But why would you have ever known that? Right. And so learning to look at the distance, we, we do that almost automatically now. And so I think we're in a similar boat, which is our technologies have an incredible upside to them if we get them right. But with regard to collective illusions, we have to recognize that it is a funhouse of mirrors and there's not a lot we can do. It, it, we will always have a distorted picture of each other engaging through this kind of media. So what we can control is whether or not we allow that distorted image to affect how we treat each other in real life. And so for me, that's where I want to spend my time is thinking about what is it that we owe each other so that these collective illusions don't destroy democracy, which at this moment, I genuinely believe collective illusions are the greatest invisible threat to free society that exists. What do government leaders say? How do they react when you say something like that? It's funny, and, and I've had the, the privilege of speaking at some of the highest levels in the country. Yeah, It's like, they're under the same illusions, and they want it to be true, but they just can't kick the fact that, like, but I'm pretty sure in this case, I'm right. And I'm like, listen, I can show you the data. You're, you're not right. Like, your gut feeling is correct about what you believe. And so 
they try to have it both ways, right? And now some of them are realizing that it's in their best interest to shatter the illusions. So particularly people who aren't in power that want power. And so trying to encourage them to actually speak up has been helpful. But what's interesting is what we've been doing on the cultural level is two things. Well, the biggest thing is we just want people to have conversations. What's pretty amazing is if you just have a conversation with someone, you'll be shocked at how quickly the shared values get revealed. And if you do that enough, you can be a massive catalyst for this. Here's something that I think is really important to understand about the American public right now that will help ease you into having more conversations. So when we looked at self-silencing, we didn't just ask whether people were self-silencing, we asked why. We actually included everything from cancel culture to whatever, like wondering, like, is it just like they're really worried about losing their job? It turned out that really wasn't the main reason. In fact, only about 15% of people said it was because of cancel culture. What a super majority of people said is it was out of decency, that they don't want to offend other people. They don't want to create conflict. And they are really convinced that people are so dang sensitive. People are just so sensitive these days. They just get offended by everything. Now, here's what's funny. It is a massive collective illusion. So in private, like upwards of close to 80% of the public is like, I really wish I could hear from other views. I don't understand. But then they're like, well, like what do you think most people say? Oh, no, 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 People, uh, Most people don't want to hear from opposing views. They're just too sensitive. So we are li- we're holding back our views because we're afraid we'll offend people because we believe they're too sensitive. And it's just not true. And all I would ask is have a conversation and you will be shocked at what you find out. Talk a little bit about companies' roles, larger companies' roles in this. There's certainly been some corporate leaders, some CEOs have stood up over the past couple of years and said, you know what, no more conversations in the workplace that don't have to do with our mission and our values and our goals, that you have to check your political beliefs at the door. It's a quick and dirty way to get rid of those conversations. Is there something more I mean, I would imagine that's where we're spending the most time in either in academic institutions or in corporations. That's where you're running into people who are not necessarily like you. I love that you brought this up because, you know, on the one hand, you could imagine saying, well, wait a minute, shouldn't we just have work be a place where we just, it's all out in the open and we talk about it? It actually turns out, no, no, because the problem with workplaces is they're not horizontal organizations, right? The verticality there creates asymmetric incentive structures. So if I think my boss holds a certain view and it has nothing to do with the work we're doing, I also know that it's in my best interest not to let her think that I oppose her view on some social issue, right? And so it actually, in trying to engage at work around things that have nothing to do with the work we're doing, it actually creates more collective illusions than it gets rid of. And and by the way, here's what's really great about the workplace. We we did a private opinion study of what people want out of the jobs they do. (laughs) And not surprising, massive collective illusions. But what people are so fed up with is they just want to be themselves at work. They want to go to work. They want it to be purposeful. They really want fulfillment out of it. And it's so much about just the job they get to do and the relationships they have. They are sick of all the outside noise. One of my favorite insights on there was, out of 56 possible trade-off priorities for what work could be, having leaders take public stances on social issues ranked in the bottom five for everybody. (laughs) Like, there's no demographic that actually wants their leadership out in front of every social issue. They just don't. But what's interesting is they believe that people want that. And so what's interesting is CEOs, like politicians, actually tend to be even more sensitive to the illusions than everyday people. So politicians, look, I just want to get reelected. So I'm going to pay really close attention to what I think constituents want. A thoughtful leader might be thinking, listen, I, I want to be sensitive to what my employees care about so I can create a culture that they, they feel good about. What they don't realize is, because they don't understand collective illusions, is that what they're hearing from is this incredibly vocal fringe and their own brains are being like, hey, I guess this is what my employees want. Meanwhile, most people don't dare to say anything else. And it just creates a culture where people cannot really lead fulfilling lives at work. So whether it's just a strategic interest in acquiring the best talent and letting them get out of work the things that they actually want, or if you want to take an active role in helping to dismantle illusions, having a workplace be this, hey, listen, it's about the work we do, not about all the other things, is a really important start. 
Yeah. It, it's, a, it's amazing that the things that we all believe but won't say are the things that could destroy us. I'm wondering if you have an opinion on what's happening right now with Roe v. Wade and if you've done any research on private opinions versus public opinions expressed on this issue. Yeah, in fact, we have a, we've got some preliminary data and we're coming out of the field next week with a very, very deep dive into all the most polarizing issues in the country. So <laughs> okay. uh, we'll, we'll give you, a, we'll share with you, like with the abortion, the Roe v. Wade one, it's not probably not terribly surprising. The vast majority of Americans across ideology do want what we used to call it. It should be safe, it should be available, and it should be rare. And there's a consensus around first trimester. There's a little bit of debate, second trimester. Very few people think third trimester except for life of the mother, right? These other kinds of things. The problem is, is that the fringes that want this, either it's like going back to like the, the old, old days, right? Where, where men control women's bodies. That, that is such a small group. It's unbelievable. And it's matched only by the smallness of the group that thinks this should just be like a, an on-demand thing anytime. And the problem is, is our politics make it a binary choice. So you see this play out, for example, with Democrats in trying to pass a bill to codify Roe v. Wade. Well, that's not what actually they did, right? They actually pushed that to something more extreme than what Roe v. Wade actually stood for. And it's like, it's almost like political points rather than actually representing the will of the vast majority of Americans. And we're just all caught in the crossfire. I, right. I, last thing I'll say is, I feel like um, if I could give a, a, a sort of metaphor for like how most Americans feel right now is like, you know, as we're, we're, we're kind of going through the getting rid of the mask mandates on planes or not, that moment where we were kind of in that middle. And you know how like, I don't know it, it, when you fly, I, I, I was on a plane where I, I want to get on like with my life like everybody else at some point, but I also want to live. So I'm willing to, to play along a little bit. But then we had somebody, these two people who decided to make a stand on the airplane before we take off about government making them wear masks. And they were so angry. And they literally like, we were delayed by 45 minutes as they had to come take these people off the plane. And we're just all like, no, I, I hear you. I, I, I feel that for you. But we just want to get to our destination. Yeah, we just want to get to the right <laughs> like, in a timely manner. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's, we're all caught in the middle of this. And, and right now, because we believe that these things represent solid blocks of the American public, we just keep our heads down. But once we recognize that these are very vocal fringes and that most people across party lines, across demographics, actually agree with you on the things that matter most. If you really believed that, think about what you'd do. Think about how much more willing you'd be to, to speak your mind, to share your opinions. So I, I think this is the thing I want people to take away is this is this is a fact about America today. And so we each have a role to play in getting us out of this, this cultural uh, tailspin. Yeah, it you know, the image that has just been sitting with me during our entire conversation is, you know, there's this deep hole and most Americans are sitting in it all thinking the same thing. And then kind of up on either side, there's these parties ready to fight, you know, aggressively in one direction or the other. And you have to wonder if that battle is going to happen without consuming all of us because we're in the bunker. But it doesn't feel like it feels like it is going to take us all out if we don't get out of the bunker and participate. And, and it will, right? Because here, here's the most dangerous thing about our politics right now and even in our culture, where we've accepted dividing up our identities based on demographics and ideology, it's just so dangerous. Literally, the like identity politics. We all kind of know when we say that something's not good about that. But think how bad it really is. In, in the book, I talk about some of the conformity traps where we get into really big trouble. And one of these around this identity problem, like especially when we narrow our groups that we belong to to very small numbers they end up having cult-like power over you. I mean, this is what cults do, right? They try to get you out of every other group. So all you have is this group. Well, think about what we're left with. You know, Robert Putnam wrote about this with bowling alone. I mean, the decimation of our, of our civic society. We used to have all kinds of community organizations we were a part of. Right. That was both healthy for a democracy, but also protective for you as an individual. Because research shows that if you have at least three groups that matter to you, and they don't even have to be big, one can be politics, another could be like your religion, or it could just be literally like your knitting club. 
Yes, as long as it matters to you. It creates a protective buffer in your brain against that ostracization. Like, so if I disagree with one of my groups, I can literally just mentalize, think about myself as a member of the other group, and it blunts the the error signal that happens. If politics is all we have left, am I really going to be willing to give up my identity, like who I see myself as, over something like one issue? No, I'll just go along because, I, like. I'll look over the other side and say, well, I'm not like those people and I don't want to be all by myself. So I'll just keep my head down and go along. We see that again with like, say the abortion debate, which is pro-life, pro-choice at the sentiment level. It is so polarized and each side sees the other side as not just incorrect, but immoral. And what's interesting is when you use private opinion to punch down into the very concrete behaviors that being pro-life or pro-choice would lead you to, right? Like, it turns out it, they're very similar. In, in fact, two people that can be pro-life, pro-choice have the exact same concrete profile of the things they, they are for and against. But because they see each other as the devil, they, they are unwilling to even talk, let alone work together to get something done. So, it's so heavy and so intense and so distressing because I, I would imagine it's sort of like global warming where you recycle and you stop using straws or whatever, but you never feel like, oh, how can my work, you know, the, it's just a drop in the bucket. How can it really reverse global warming? And how do we create momentum around getting out of the bunker and having conversations with individuals and making sure you're involved in, you know, multiple groups so you never feel ostracized? And it feels like this is going to require some leadership from somewhere and our government leaders don't benefit from getting us out of the bunker. That's why for me, it's a culture play. And we've been putting some work in on that side to try to dismantle these. But here's the good news for listeners. I'm so glad there's good news. Yeah, there, there is good news. <laughs> I mean, look, we, we've got work to do. And, and if we if we don't do anything, it's going to be very bad. It is self-fulfilling. Okay. But here's the great news about collective illusions. They are very powerful when they're in force, but they're also unbelievably fragile because they're actually lies. Right? And so if you can dismantle them, you can actually create social change at a scale and speed that is like otherwise unimaginable. And, and history has shown us that it really isn't that hard. It just takes courage. Because think about it, if we all, most of us agree, but we think we don't agree, well, then some of us, I just need to hear it, say I need to hear from some of my closer neighbors. Okay, well, mm -hmm. now I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, I see. Other people might need to hear from a few more people. But as each one of us finds the moral courage to be honest with about what we believe, mm -hmm. we are affecting not just one other person, but a lot more people once we realize that. And it starts to create what's called bandwagon change, right? And so a couple examples in history where this has been true. So the marriage equality movement was built on dismantling a collective illusion. So 2003, you had scholars and activists get together, I believe it was in Chicago, trying to understand wh what's possible. Public opinion sat in favor of gay marriage only at like 30%, right? It was pretty bad. And a lot of people said, hey, do not advocate for marriage because this will put back the whole movement. People just, are, it, their, their opinions change too slowly. But there was a subgroup of them that recognized that in private, there was a slim majority of people who actually were in favor of it. It was the love is love group and the libertarians, basically, huh. right? Okay. And so what they realized is the trick with collective illusions is it's not about persuasion. It's about social proof. And there's a really important distinction because if you try to persuade people that the illusion isn't real, it actually ends up reinforcing the idea. Why are you trying so hard to convince me of this? I can share an example where that backfired. But this is why this group went to Hollywood and they started telling stories in TV and movies and giving people the sort of backgrounding of like, wait a minute, this is more normal. More people agree with this than I thought. It had a pretty profound effect. That combined with the, the coming out of the closet movement, which took a lot of moral courage on the part of individuals. But basically, if you track the change, which was, which was exponential in terms of, we sit today and it's basically reversed. Close to 70% of the public is in favor of gay marriage. That's the fastest change in public opinion ever recorded. And when you see change that fast, it's a guarantee there was an illusion there because private opinion does not change that fast. It just doesn't. So you look at like interracial marriage, it, it was slow and linear to get over 
because it, which then signals that people privately just didn't agree with it, right? Unfortunately. So what we see with this, so not just marriage equality, that changed quick. Because if I try to tell you, you should care and that more people do care about gay marriage, I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, I'll give you one quick example, which is because I, I want the, the listeners to know, like, if you don't follow social proof mechanism, if you try to persuade, you will make it worse. This is particularly true for leaders. So in the 90s, the government was really worried about teenagers using drugs. And you probably remember this. They, they spent a billion dollars on an ad campaign to convince teenagers to not try drugs. Right. With the egg in the frying pan. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and it was a, it was an incredible ad campaign that over six years, I believe, the typical teenager saw three of those ads per day for six years. For sure. Unbelievable. I was right? one of those teenagers. Absolutely. So here's the problem. The assumption was that kids were trying drugs because they were interested in drugs. But private opinion was crystal clear on this, that kids were actually skeptical about drugs. What they wanted was to fit in. And they were under the illusion that most teenagers in America were using drugs. Because of the ads. And so this is the thing. So because they were under the illusion, you blitz them with a billion dollars of ads <sighs> trying to t scare them straight. And what they took from it was oh, this must be what we are doing. Because <laughs> otherwise, why would adults try so hard to get us to stop? And the result of that campaign, a billion dollars in six years, was an increase in first-time drug use amongst teenagers directly attributed to the campaign itself. So we have to recognize when the problem is a collective illusion, it's about social proof, right? It's about our leaders speaking the truth. It is about our cultural pop culture speaking up. You know, you'd be shocked at what TV shows and musicians, people listen to them to tell them what most people think. But at the, in the final analysis, it's called contact theory. It is really about you and I being honest with each other. That's what it comes down to. And like, I'll just say, like, we have to find both the moral courage to be honest about our views with each other and the civic courage to make it safe for other people to do the same thing. Right. I mean, you, you can see things snowballing again and again and again. Like right now, we're hearing a lot. And, and I think there's a lot of people shaking their heads in agreement that mental health with everyone and particularly with kids is a massive problem. But then you also we're starting to see messaging amplified that it's the fault of schools. It's the fault of social and emotional learning. We've somehow unearthed a place to point blame, maybe because it's so scary, but I'm sure it's a fringe belief. Man, it's almost like there should be someone, like a, like a social illusion spotter who can just grab these things before they get wiry and out of control. Yeah, and I love that you brought this up because mental health, I think, is... First of all, we already know there's collective illusions there. The prevalence rates are much higher than people are willing to say out loud because they perceive a stigma. They don't privately think it's stigmatized, which is so interesting, but they, they're convinced. This is true in the general public. It's also true from research amongst police officers, uh, military personnel who are like, no, listen, I, I would take advantage. I, I would go see, get help. I think this is real, but I don't think everybody else does. And so they don't, right? Because if as a police officer, if I want to signal belonging to that group, I'm going to behave in the ways that I think most people behave in that group. It's really dangerous. And so here we are where prevalence rates are through the roof in terms of mental health. There is a private willingness and desire to actually build the infrastructure and, and do the stuff that needs to be done to really put mental health on par with physical health. I believe that these collective illusions will stop that dead in its tracks because I, I'm sitting there thinking, well, I don't think most people really want this. So why would I like advocate for it? I, first of all, it seems like futile, right? So Best case, nothing happens. Worst case, I'm against my group. And so then you have these sort of enterprising fringe people who then use this kind of fear and this place to actually rechannel that energy toward their little pet project. And you're seeing that right now, just to your point. It's, it's like something like mental health is going to get co-opted into these education wars. And then it will basically be guaranteed that you are never getting traction on it. No, oh, I know. To the detriment of everyone. Yeah. Ooh, I don't want to end on that though, <laughs> but I'm also held you way over time. So, so no, give us, give us the part about hope again, Todd, if we, we all, every day we go out into the world and we talk to people who we don't know and find out what they're thinking. If you just imagine for a minute, if you just trust me that most people that you don't even know share 
most of your core values and aspirations. If you really believe that, which is not what it feels like right now, if you really believe that, how would you behave, right? So let's take something like, I'll give you a concrete example because there is hope here, but we need to take action. If you look at public education, we have longitudinal data before, during, and now coming out of the pandemic about what the American public wants out of education, like K-12 kind of thing. They don't want the system we have. They want different, not better. They want a focus on developing kids as whole people, about developing them, preparing them for meaningful work, right? And they, it's really about developing their individuality and preparing them for life. And there is a sense that like not everyone... They don't understand why education is a zero-sum game. Why does some yeah. why do some kids have to lose? It doesn't make any sense. But they are completely convinced that they are in a tiny minority. They are so convinced that everybody else likes the standardized system we have and wants it to be only about college, which again, I'm not opposed to college, but but that can't be the only outcome. And into that world, well, why would I agitate for change? It's a collective decision. Like if I'm in the minority, I'm not going to get my way. So I'll just say nothing. But what's important here is that school leaders who actually, let's let's say they are listening and they do care. All they're hearing from is a vocal fringe that makes it seem like we're okay with the status quo when we're not. And so our ability to speak up, and in the book, I, I tried to lay out concrete things you could do. Like, yes, if you can find the moral courage, just to be honest, because I'm telling you, most people agree with you. <laughs> like, that's that's the easy way out. And, and you will be shocked at how fast this changes. If you're not comfortable with that yet, in the book, I laid out a few things you can do to at least detect whether there's illusions and help to start to, to break them. So for example, one easy one, which will seem simple, but it, it research shows it has a pretty big effect, which is if I think that my group's against me, rather than say nothing, I can just what's called inject uncertainty. I can just say, I haven't made up my mind and you can give on the one hand, on the other hand, right? And it turns out groups don't punish members who haven't made up their mind yet. They don't, they try to convince you. So let's say I think everybody else wants to vote for candidate X and I like candidate Y. Instead of just lying, I can just say, you know, I haven't made up my mind on the one hand and I could give the pros of of both sides. If it's an illusion, if we're all just saying what we think everybody wants us to say, people will grab onto that lifeboat that that is your, on the one hand, on the other hand, you'll start hearing everyone parrot back that same kind of stuff. If what happens is most people around you start to try to convince you that, that candidate A is the way to go, then you know that that's actually what the group believes and you can make a decision whether you want to conform or not. So there, we have a lot of things we can do other than just self-silence and just know that every time we self-silence, it's hurting you as an individual, but it's also hurting the very group that you're trying to say you care so much about belonging to. And I believe that moving forward, you know, this idea of congruence between our private selves and public selves, we've known for 60 years in psychology that that congruence is critical to self-actualization, to leading a good life. What collective evolution show us is this might be the single most important thing that you can do as a good member of your group, because your silence destroys the very group you care about. It's so good. It's so good. I would love to talk to you for another hour, but I should let you go. I thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to me. This is so great. Everyone should go out and read your book if they haven't yet, Collective Illusions. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Todd Rose, co-founder of Populous. If you would like to learn more about Todd's work at Populous and about his new book, Collective Illusions, please check out the links in our blog. 